0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the fourth session of the Monetary Conference. I'm Steve Hanke. I'll be moderating this session. Uh, Jim Dorn will join us to give his opening remarks, his closing remarks. He got caught in a terrible traffic jam coming down from Baltimore. Uh, he should have been on public transport like me and been on the train. But at any case, Jim will join us at the end of the uh of the uh, fourth panel, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Bill Poole. Bill's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Most recently, was president of the St. Louis Fed, and I think it was most noted for the fact that he kept research standards at a high level at the St. Louis Fed, and also kept market participants on their toes. Bill, when you spoke, we listened, and we will. Certainly do so this afternoon.
1: Our session uh, this afternoon is uh, entitled The Way Forward, and I put a uh, title on uh, my remarks, Incentives, Not Regulations. Um, Most of the world today is concentrating not on the way forward after the crisis, but the way out of the crisis. This concentration brings a very real danger that steps taken now will cause problems later. The most obvious danger, perhaps, is that enormous government spending here and abroad will increase outstanding debt to a degree that will increase temptation to attempt to finance government uh, budget through inflation. Moral hazard is a less obvious, but perhaps more serious problem we will face. Before I dig into the subject further, I want to make clear that my perspective on the source of the problem, the financial crisis, is that the crisis was fundamentally caused by mistakes in the private sector, uh, mistakes in private financial firms, and not by mistakes of the federal government. I know that's not a view, uh, as we've heard, that is necessarily uh, universally shared. And I'll proceed by first outlining the case for that view. Then I'll discuss the role of federal and state governments in creating the crisis, a secondary role, as I've already argued. And finally, based on my analysis of the source of the crisis, I'll discuss steps that would help create a more stable financial environment in the future. Now, many firms, commercial banks, investment banks, hedge funds, funds, and others, became enamored of the subprime mortgage products, because of the expectation of a high return in what was otherwise a low-return world. These investors were sloppy in their credit analysis. Although it is true that residential real estate prices had not declined on a national average basis since the Great Depression, particular regions of the United States had experienced declines. Particularly after the collapse of the tech bubble in the early part of this decade, investors should have considered the possibility of falling house prices. The rating agencies especially were responsible for poor credit analysis. The issue, incidentally, is not whether a forecast, a forecast of declining house prices was appropriate, but whether there was a risk of declining house prices. Surely no knowledgeable analyst should ever say that there is no risk of a decline in an asset price. Beyond weak credit analysis, many managers exposed their portfolios to extreme asset liability duration mismatch. Mortgages are inherently long-term assets. Portfolio managers should should not have financed them with short-term liabilities, such as commercial paper. And to compound the mistake, portfolios were highly leveraged. Capital ratios of 3 to 5% were not uncommon. AIG would have failed in mid-September were it not for a Federal Reserve bailout. The problem there was that AIG sold credit default swaps without maintaining an adequate reserve against possible losses. The federal government did encourage the subprime mortgage market in a general way, but that did not but did not put its stamp of approval on any particular subprime products or push any commercial or investment bank to buy subprime mortgages. An asterisk to this statement is that the Community Reinvestment Act did encourage and even require commercial banks to invest in lower-quality assets, but not in any particular direction. Even there, commercial banks went far beyond any reasonable interpretation of CRA, and investment banks are not subject to CRA. Thus, the federal government, while not without blame, was not the main reason for the crisis. CRA has been been law, after all, since the late 1970s, and there was no recent discontinuity in the interpretation or administration of the law that could explain banks' accumulation of subprime mortgage assets. In sum, I hold the market responsible for the financial crisis. The AIG situation and the poorly constructed mortgage portfolios were the responsibility of the private firms, the private sector. The basic regulatory framework and tax law governing financial firms has been enforced for two decades or more. I regard the repeal of Glass-Steagall and the end of restrictions on bank branching across state lines as not being especially important for present purposes. Neither of these changes affected investment banks and rating agencies except insofar as freer markets created a more competitive environment. In any event, pro-market economists cannot blame reduced regulation for the crisis. My criticism of private financial firms is widely shared by those who want more government regulation. I believe that free market advocates who do not want more regulation, and I certainly count myself in this group, need to accept the fact that the market screwed up. The solution is not more regulation, but a change in government policy to improve the incentive structure firms face so that they will pursue financial strategies that reduce the risk of systemic financial failure. Government mistakes certainly did play a role. Federal government sponsorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac contributed to the failure of those two very large firms. Both operated with too little capital because of the implied guarantee of federal backing, which has now become an explicit guarantee. The federal government pushed both firms to accumulate subprime mortgages in pursuit of its affordable housing goals. But in the event, the the role of these two firms in the crisis turned out to be rather minor. Events surrounding their being taken into conservatorship in early September created relatively small problems in the financial markets. Bailing out Fannie and Freddie will be expensive to taxpayers, and we face the unfortunate prospect of almost complete federalization of the residential mortgage market. Now, some emphasize that federal and state governments failed to adequately regulate state-chartered mortgage companies that originated most of the subprime mortgages. My view is that the subprime mortgage was a useful innovation. The problem was that investment banks and investors simply took the innovation much too far. The massive increase in subprime mortgages helped to bid up house prices and probably reflected deterioration over time in credit standards. Now, whatever the cause of the crisis, we need to improve financial stability. Very high leverage has been the biggest single contributor to the crisis. It is interesting to compare the effects of the dot-com bust and the house price bust. After the stock market peak in 2000, the NASDAQ average declined by about 75 percent without creating a financial crisis. Conversely, just the beginning of the house price decline led rather quickly to financial crisis. The difference was leverage. Much subprime mortgage paper was held in highly leveraged portfolios, whereas the dot-com equities were held mostly in unleveraged accounts. It would be simple, conceptually at least, to reduce the incentive for leverage by changing the tax law. The deductibility of interest in the corporate tax law could be reduced or eliminated over a period of years. At the same time, the statutory corporate tax rate could be lowered from 35% to whatever level makes uh, the tax change revenue neutral. Firms now operating with little leverage would receive a tax cut, and those operating with high leverage would experience a tax increase. High leverage is proven to be socially costly. A tax penalty for leverage is appropriate. This simple change in the US corporate tax law is market friendly. It would not impose new regulatory burdens. A condition contributing to the financial crisis was the organization of credit default swaps market. The market is entirely over the counter, with each swap negotiated separately uh, between the counterparties. The AIG experience shows that the market did not adequately enforce the maintenance of collateral or reserves against the swap positions. If the credit default swaps market were organized through an exchange, the exchange would be the counterparty and would enforce margin collateral. The exchange would uh, sell out swap positions before they came, became deeply underwater. Now, from what I understand, introducing an exchange for trading credit default swaps has been discussed for several years, uh, but resisted by the investment banks and others that found over-the-counter swaps a rich source of fees. An organized exchange would provide more pricing transparency, and strict adherence to margins would be a source of stability. The reform would be market-friendly. There would be no need to ban over-the-counter swaps, but presumably the advantage of exchange-traded swaps uh, would move much of the market to that location, as has happened with many other derivatives markets. It appears that the federal government will operate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for the indefinite future. The companies have a financing advantage over private companies, uh, private competitors, because their access to funds at interest rates close to those paid by the U.S. Treasury. Parenthetically, I assume that the cur- currently elevated spreads on agency obligations will disappear over time. Fannie and Freddie have increased their market share over the past 20 years, and this trend is likely to continue until the entire mortgage market is effectively federalized. Fannie and Freddie rules on what mortgages can be securitized will control the structure of mortgages. These rules will tend to stifle innovation and prevent emergence of strong private competitors. The only way around this prospect is to phase out Fannie and Freddie over time. I see absolutely no reason for federalization of the mortgage market, but that unfortunately seems to be the prospect. Many observers want more regulation to ensure financial crisis cannot recur. As I read the plea for more regulation, I see no specifics for what regulations would accomplish that task. I fear that Congress will pass sweeping new regulatory authority – with financial stability objectives, that is, fancy preambles in the uh, in the legislation, but no clear idea of how to accomplish the objective. Regulatory agencies will be directed to solve the problem. Regulatory agencies will probably try to ban certain financial instruments thought to be dangerous. Consider payday loans as an example. An attempt to ban such loans will simply drive the market underground. An attempt to ban certain sorts of mortgages could lead to the same result, or, if effective, such bans will stifle innovation. The subprime mortgage was a useful innovation introduced by largely unregulated mortgage companies and not by the federally regulated depository institutions. The problem was that subprime mortgages were pushed to excess, and if such innovations are made impossible, subprime borrowers will not have future access to credit, except through costly federally subsidized programs. Those who want more regulation should keep two facts in mind. First, regulation will inevitably be bent to serve political purposes. Of course, that is exactly what some pro-regulation observers want. Before the financial crisis, many members of Congress cheered subprime mortgages because they served affordable housing goals. Second, the financial uh, economy is inherently very competitive. With access by Internet, for example, many financial firms could relocate abroad, (laughs) thus escaping federal jurisdiction. Actions this year are creating moral hazard to an unprecedented degree, and unwinding the situation will be costly. We are clearly seeing the effects already. Lehman, I believe, delayed raising capital, expecting that it would receive the same sort of treatment that Bear Stearns did. Lehman was instead permitted to fail. Investment banks have become bank holding companies so that they would qualify for Federal Reserve resources. There are reports that GMAC and insurance uh, companies are trying to convert to bank charters uh, in one way or another to become eligible for Fed support and for Treasury capital infusion program for banks. Auto companies are asking for access to the $700 billion TARP fund. The Federal Reserve and the federal government need to move quickly to limit which firms have access to government resources. The Federal Reserve uh, should put a moratorium on all conversions of corporate charters to commercial bank charters. Congress should refuse to bail out any more firms. Weak firms should be required to seek protection under the bankruptcy law. The clear fact is that the greater the number of firms bailed out in coming quarters, the greater will be the number of applicants for bailouts. I see no re- no way to decide which firms are deserving of a bailout and which are not. Members of Congress should understand that for every firm bailed out, there will be many others seeking funds. Most of these firms will necessarily be disappointed. The same will be true for individuals seeking mortgage relief through government programs. The issue is not just disappointment, of course, but that firms and households hoping for bailouts will fail to take appropriate action to adjust to changed economic circumstances. Mistakes will be larger and adjustment delayed when bailouts are expected but denied. The only way to avoid a moral hazard mess, a mess that in time is going to rival this uh, current financial mess, is for Congress to provide generalized assistance through the tax law and then walk away from all of the specific uh, bailout um, uh, requests. A cut in the corporate tax rate with generous carry-forward and carry-back provisions will provide assistance to firms that have a chance of survival. Others should reorganize themselves through bankruptcy. The most desirable fiscal policy steps will be those consistent with the long-run needs of the economy. Revisions in the corporate tax law to encourage investment should be at the top of the list. Capital outlays should be expensed for tax purposes rather than depreciated over time. Short of that, investment tax credits and accelerated depreciation would be appropriate. Stimulating investment, after all, was a key objective of the Kennedy administration when it came to power in 1961. Same approach is needed today. The economy needs more investment and less consumption over the long run. Any stimulus bill next year should be consistent with that objective. I support current Federal Reserve monetary policy, uh, at least if I think I know what the Federal (laughs) Reserve is doing, Uh, It is important that the economy not be permitted to enter a downward spiral leading to deep recession and ongoing deflation. As the situation stabilizes, however, the Fed will have to pull pull back the bank reserves it is now creating. Otherwise, the result will be an eventual increase in inflation that will create major new problems. In sum, the way forward is this, as I see it. Enact tax law changes that will improve the long-run stability of the economy by reducing the incentive for leverage, and by encouraging a substitution of business investment for consumption. And on the monetary policy front, the Fed must be prepared to reduce policy accommodation as the recovery uh, takes hold. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Bill. Our next speaker is Alan Meltzer, professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, We do have our, our little packet with bio sketches. I would recommend, in addition to that, if you really want to understand uh, Meltzer, that you can read his essay, My Life Philosophy in the American Economist in 1990. Uh, and In, in that, uh, I was caught by one thing, uh, caught by many things, actually, but one thing that caught my eye is uh, Alan's professor at UCLA and longtime collaborator Carl Bruner as Alan put it taught me to analyze first and apply value judgments and preferences later I've been most recently impressed with Alan's principled, no-nonsense arguments in total opposition to the TARP Uh, those arguments uh, did bring Paul Krugman even around in a debate uh, at least momentarily Alan (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Alan, with that, you do have 15 minutes. I forgot to tell you what the time limit was. All
2: right. uh,
3: let me begin by telling you that this is a very innovative country and economy, as you know. Uh, nowadays, if you go Christmas shopping and you buy a toaster, they offer you a bank.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make four or five unrelated points, and then I'm going to talk about Why did we get into this problem, and how can we get out of it? Uh, The four or five points I'm going to begin with are, as I said, unrelated. The the first is that we should close down as promptly as possible Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There never was a reason for those two institutions other than to avoid the congressional budget process. The benefit that people got from Fannie and Freddie – had to do with a subsidy that came on the mortgage side, that is, on the interest rate side. Congress could have passed that subsidy over and over again. They avoided passing that subsidy because they could take the problem off budget, and that led to a certain amount of benefit to the members of Congress who participated in the profits of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's number one. Second, looking ahead... The debt of the United States as a share of GDP is going to go from 40% to 60%. If you look at Japan or Italy or Belgium, that doesn't seem like a startling number. The difference is that much of that debt is owed to foreigners. So <clears throat> looking ahead, get used to the idea that we're going to have to export more and probably consume at a slower rate. After years and years of expenditure on consumption here, we're going to have to learn that to tighten belts. That's not going to be an easy thing. Woe to the president who presides over that period. Third, I get a lot of questions from the press every day. And one of the questions these days is deflation. The last time somebody asked me that question, it must have been Uh, The 15th time that I'd heard it, I said I thought that was the most stupid question I'd heard in 40 years of dealing with the press. It's time that the people who talk about deflation went back to school and learned about the difference between maintained rates of change and one-time changes in level. The deflation that we're going to have, so-called, is a decline in oil and food prices that are the reverse of the increase in oil and food prices – those change the level of prices, but not the sustained rate of change of prices. So <clears throat> deflation is a sustained rate of change of prices. Incidentally, in Federal Reserve history, there are six or seven periods in which we had deflation. Only one of them was a disaster, the Great Depression. It was a disaster because while the deflation was going on, the money growth was falling so that the expectation was it would continue. The price level would continue to fall. The others, if you looked at the footprints of those recoveries, you wouldn't be able to distinguish them from any other recovery. Fourth is the bankruptcy law. There's a lot of pressure to change the bankruptcy law to adjust to the current circumstance. If we do that, the simple fact is we won't have a bankruptcy law the benefit of the bankruptcy law is it gives people some ideas to what they can expect under troublesome circumstances if we change it in relation to those circumstances we really violate the rule of law it's not a good argument to say that of course we change the bankruptcy law of course we can change the bankruptcy law what we're doing what we would be doing that is a mistake is to change the bankruptcy law in response to the problems that we have finally among the unrelated issues, I believe that the Congress and the administration are working on the wrong problem. You can solve the mortgage problem by solving the housing problem, but you can't solve the housing problem by adjusting the mortgage market. Let me expand on that a little bit. The major problem that the economy faces in the housing and mortgage market, is the price decline in houses stimulates defaults, and the expected decline for the next year, which the market puts at 11%, but who knows how accurate that's going to turn out to be, people mean there are going to be many, many more defaults as the price of the houses falls even further below the mortgage value. So what you want to solve is the problem not of the people who are currently losing their houses. You want to prevent the people, in the, because that's very difficult to do, and there are many, many proposals, but none of them get around the problem, as far as I can see, get around the problem that as you benefit people by reducing the value of their mortgage or the interest rate in their mortgage, you just encourage other people to come in and ask for help. <clears throat> if you solve the problem of the declining house price and the future problem, of the mortgage market, then, by you need to do that. You need to increase the demand for houses. In a normal, if this were a normal year, we'd be selling roughly one and a half million houses. We're probably going to be somewhere around seven hundred thousand. So there's a lot of room to increase demand. What we have to do is find a way to stimulate demand. My proposal is a very simple one. It's simple. It's transparent. And instead of depending upon government bureaucrats to decide who's in and who's out, it allows individuals to make their own choice about what they want to do. And that is to say, if you make a down payment on a house between now and the end of 2009, you get a tax credit for the amount of the down payment or enough of it to make it interesting to you. And if you don't pay taxes at all, you get the credit anyway. That way, I don't care whether... They're buying their first, second, third, or in the case of John McCain, eighth house. <laughs> the important thing is to remove the excess supply. That will do two things. It will slow or stop the decline in prices and therefore work on future defaults. It will also eventually stimulate the return to work of the people in the building trades who are a big part of the, of the economy. So instead of working now, if we do that, mortgages, why are mortgages going to be improved by that? Because the problem in the mortgage market is, as I think Secretary Paulson eventually discovered, mortgages are being sold every day. They're sold at a price which my friends in the financial industry tell me is around $45 per $100. Why so low? because nobody knows how far those prices are going to go down. So they take a big discount. If Secretary Paulson went through his original plan and actually bought up mortgages, he would do it at the expense of driving into bankruptcy the people who sold him the mortgages, because they don't have that much equity in order to sell their mortgage portfolios for $45. So what we want to do is go around that problem— as he eventually recognized, and go more directly. He hasn't recognized yet we need to go more directly, but we do. We need to go to clean up the excess supply of housing. Now, I'd like to turn in my a little bit of my remaining time to <clears throat> one of the problems that annoys me uh, greatly, and that is the Congress blames everyone that they can think of for the problems that have occurred. They uh, talk a great deal about the problems of deregulation, as Bill just said, the problems of deregulation. I would challenge anybody to point to something that was deregulated during the last eight years. Nothing was deregulated. The last major deregulation was the 1999 Act, which President Clinton signed, which removed effectively removed the Glass-Steagall provisions, separating commercial and investment banking. No other country in the world separates commercial and investment banking, and none of them have problems on that account, nor have we had problems on that account. George Benston, years and years ago, wrote a paper pointing out that all of the argument against, in favor of Glass-Steagall was based upon somebody's conjecture, and everybody else who talked about it referred to the conjecture. No one produced evidence showing that the combination of investment and commercial banking was cause of the Great Depression. And, of course, we now understand that the Federal Reserve was the main cause of the Great Depression. So what are some of the things that need to be recognized and therefore improved? The first is, with Bill, We need to do something about the government security, the government corporations like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, Congress passed the Community Reinvestment Act in 1977. At the time, it wasn't innocuous, but it wasn't as harmful as it later became. The requirements of the Community Investment Act kept getting more <coughs> easier. Uh, in 2005, the housing an urban development agency encouraged the use of no-down-payment mortgages. The uh, 2003, I believe, the Bush administration passed somebody something called the Every Homeowner, Every Person a Homeowner Law. I mean, there were just tremendous pressure from government to put people into houses, and uh, <clears throat> that and the GSEs, the government secure, uh, the government insure, uh, financing agencies like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac began to buy these no down payment loans, encouraging the market for no down payment loans. We need, as a first order of business, the extent of that is given by something like what happened from 1980 to 2007. The amount of of, of mortgages acquired by the Fannie and Freddie went from something like 200 million to 4 trillion—an right? enormous increase during that period. We need to get rid of that. If we're going to subsidize housing for the poor, then we should do it on budget and not in this roundabout method. One great reform in Congress that we'll never get is. To take all these off budgeted agencies off out and close them out and make them into appropriations, second, the role of the Fed, many people blame Alan Greenspan for this, but no one Alan Greenspan did make a mistake. He kept monetary policy too long, too low, too easy, too long. He was afraid of deflation. <clears throat> that was a mistake. the de- risk of deflation in an economy with our budget deficit and the long-term prospect of a decline in the dollar seems to me to be minimal. In any case, he worried about that, and he kept the interest rate too low too long. But no one made the people in the banks and the financial institutions buy those mortgages. They could have bought Treasury bills the way they are now. So the responsibility for the error, the Fed helped to encourage an environment in which that was possible, but the decision to do those things falls on the people who made it. Now, to some extent, they were encouraged by something, a story that they told themselves and each other throughout this period, which was that there was a Greenspan put, which meant that they believed, I think without much evidence, they believed that if they got into trouble, the Fed would bail them out. Therefore, they can afford to expand their leverage ratios to the positions that they eventually got. And that was their decision based upon their belief that the Fed would bail them out. (coughs) Now, Now, in writing the history of the Fed, one of the things you come across is that in 95 years, the Fed never announced what its lender of last resort policy was. Sometimes it bailed them out. Sometimes it let them fail. Sometimes it did something intermediate. It negotiated some arrangement like long-term capital management or, in more recent times, Bear Stearns, where somebody would take it over, but, but they would not be allowed to fail in the sense of go into bankruptcy. <clears throat> and that is a system which creates uncertainty, particularly in times like these. And, and, of course, that's what happened in times like these. First, they semi-rescued Bear Stearns. Then they let Lehman fail. If you're running a portfolio, what are you supposed to believe is the next step? The next step may be that they help you or that they don't. So uh, uncertainty is increased, and that really showed up in the way in which people, after Lehman failed, ran for Treasury bills and drove the Treasury bill rate down to something close to zero and occasionally below. That was a mistake, and I believe it's a mistake that needs to be corrected. The Fed needs to announce and insist upon, that's a hard part, its lender of last resort policy. Third, I would say there is a problem for management of compensation of the people. We have MBAs five years, ten years out of the best business schools in the world – Buying and selling stuff, it's junk. Why did they do it? Well, they were well rewarded for doing it, and they got fired if they didn't do it. So they did it, and they made a lot of money doing it. Now, it didn't happen at all banks. J.P. Morgan Chase is obviously an example. Bank of America is another example. In my own area, Pittsburgh National is an example. They didn't get involved in doing anything like what Citigroup and some of the others have done. So... <clears throat> That's something that management has to do. They have to think about the way in which they compensate people and to spread that compensation over a longer period of time so that they, have, so that they and their employees have something at stake when they do these things. I, mean, I believe the fact that we have these two crises, the dot-com crisis and the, and the banking financial housing crisis in close proximity has a lot to do With the way people are compensated. Fourth, the regulators never mention the fact that the Basel Agreement is certainly contributed to the current problems. In my book, I say and repeat very often these days that lawyers and bureaucrats make regulation, but markets learn to circumvent the expensive ones. So the Basel Agreement was an agreement which said, if you, the first Basel Agreement, if you hold more risky assets, you have to hold more capital. Well, <clears throat> what did the banks do? They didn't hold more capital. They took the risky assets off the balance sheet. Eventually they had to put them back, but they didn't know that at the time. So that's a good case of circumventing the regulation. There are many other examples, Regulation Q and... Uh, in my book, I give lots of examples of circumvented regulation. Fifth, <clears throat> oh, I mentioned that, low interest rates. And finally, Wall Street, they got too clever. They invented mortgage instruments that they can't now unwind. That contributes a lot to the present crisis. When Sheila Baer says, well, we're just going to forgive the people who default, it's not going to be easy to collect the pieces of those mortgages and put them back together again. I mean, it, it, they're not just sitting there the way they were in the days of the old savings and loans where there was a mortgage and, uh, uh, in, and even if it had been sold, it was sold in a piece. They now exist in pieces, and so you have to find those pieces. It's not going to be easy to find the pieces. It's not clear who is responsible for putting together the package of the mortgages. So uh, that's a case in which people were much too clever for the circumstances that later developed. That may not be all the reasons for the problem, but it's a good list of where you would start to try to, to prevent crises of this kind again. Get a lender of last resort standard, get the Congress to appropriate on the record the amount of money that they're going to use to subsidize housing. We're not going to prevent them from subsidizing housing, but improve the compensation system in the market, get rid of some of the worst of the Basel agreement, and close down Fannie and Freddie. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alan. Our last speaker is Jeff Myron, Senior Lecturer and Director of Undergraduate Studies at Harvard. Uh, Jeff, I assume you pulled down those directorships after being named one of the favorite professors of Harvard, 2006, 2007, and 2008. Uh, I might also mention that our last speaker and first speaker have something in common. They're both graduates of Swarthmore College. Uh, Jeff, 20, 20 years after Bill, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, the I think it's fitting that our last paper at a Cato conference be titled, A Libertarian Perspective on the Financial Crisis in Defense of Doing Nothing. Jeff?
4: Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Um, so let me start by saying it's, it's basically a coincidence that uh, I'm last on the program. I teach in the mornings. I couldn't get here early to make sure I'd be, my flight would be on time, etc. We put me last. But it turns out that I'm also going to be the most extreme. I didn't think that was going to be the case when I agreed to come here. I'm, I'm used to being the most extreme person in the room, but... Um, I, Not just at Harvard, in my household, and lots of places, but um, I've heard a lot of things in the the part of the day that I was able to be here, most of the afternoon, that if I'd closed my eyes, I would have thought I was in the Brookings Institution. So (laughs) I'm going to give you a different perspective, Um, partially because a lot of people have come before me. I'll skip some parts of what I was going to say uh, in order to focus on things that we haven't discussed too much. Basically, I want to make three points uh, in the discussion. The first thing I do is just look at the facts, look at the behavior of the U.S. economy over the last 10 years, and in some cases farther back, and say what happened. Okay, so there's a bunch of graphs. Uh, if you have access to those, you might want to look at them. But I'm going to just summarize what those say very briefly. The second thing I try to do is say why did this crisis happen, and I take a very, very strong view, which is, similar to what a lot of people have said, but certainly disagrees with what other people have said. Um, and then third, I talk about the bailout, which has not been discussed uh, directly that much today because the focus has been on monetary policy. So I'll spend most of my time explaining my position on the bailout after having set the stage a bit uh, with the history. Before we can look forward, we need to make sure we know where we've been. So in terms of um, where we've been, I have some very simple figures in the paper that show you the behavior of real GDP, of industrial production, of retail sales, of employment for the last five to ten years, and a very consistent picture emerges. The U.S. economy was growing quite nicely, hey, for four or five years in a row. We're coming out of the 2001 recession. And then around the beginning of 2008, plus or minus a couple months, almost all indicators, GDP is a slight exception, but most indicators clearly slow down and start to turn down, And there is very, very clear evidence the U.S. economy was contracting as early as January 1 of this year. Now, I'm not going to try – I try not to use the word recession because – not because I'm afraid of scaring the markets, but because that has a technical meaning and we may or may not technically be in a recession as the NBER will define it. But clearly, we are already in a contraction, and we've been in a contraction since well before uh, the Lehman – failure since well before the AIG bailout and well before uh, the Treasury's and Fed's interventions, uh, dramatic interventions with the TARP uh, in mid-September. Okay. The next thing to note okay, about the economy is to think about the housing sector, as lots of people have said. Okay. And what do we see there? We see that starting okay, with housing prices. Beginning around 1997, maybe a bit earlier, there's a dramatic run-up in housing prices. There's a really unusually large increase in housing prices, which maybe was what fundamentals suggested, but which is so large relative to average normal behavior that one has to suspect that something odd was going on. And if you have my instincts, whenever something in the markets and economy doesn't make sense, you suspect the government, and I will come back to that in a few minutes. Okay? Now, let's look at homeownership rates. It turns out that U.S. homeownership rates also do something unprecedented, starting at roughly the same time, something like the mid-1990s. They go to much, much higher levels than they've ever been at, okay, by a non-trivial amount, by a substantial amount. Okay, and they peak in roughly 2006, 2007. So we have a big boom in housing prices. We have a big boom in homeownership. Of those two things kind of sort of go together. Thirdly, if you look at the data on residential investment... Okay, residential investment, of course, is increasing on average over time. It's also, of course, quite volatile over time. Okay? But if you took the trend that you would have estimated up through about 1994 or 5, and then look at the behavior of residential investment, of housing construction from mid from the mid-90s on excuse me, mid-1990s on, it's very dramatically higher. Okay? So that makes perfect sense. Okay? Homeownership is going up. It's going up. That means that we need more houses for people to be in. And, of course, at the same time, residential investment is going up. We're building more houses. Housing prices are going up at the same time. Those three things together, of course, suggest you that something is stimulating the demand for housing. Okay, We're moving up a supply curve as something is shifting the demand curve out. Okay? So keep that in mind a few minutes later. A few other facts are worth noting okay? uh, as background. The stock market, if you look at it, and if you – do the sensible thing of looking at it in logs, that is to say percentage changes, what you will see is that the behavior in the last few years is really not so odd. It's not so bizarre. And relative to standard benchmarks, the market is right now basically priced about right, depending on exactly what benchmark you use. Maybe it's a little high, maybe it's a little low, but it's in the ballpark of exactly where it should be. So is there a reason to think that something fundamentally awful has happened? Not necessarily. One plausible view is it was overvalued, okay, and it's come back down, just as housing prices were quite plausibly overvalued and have come back down, and just as plausibly we overinvested in housing, and so something had to address that, uh, as we'll get to in a second. Now, what caused all this? So I will try to summarize this fairly quickly because lots of people have talked about it. In my view if we're going to talk about causes, there's exactly one cause, which is the federal government's commitment to expanding housing for low-income borrowers. Okay? Clearly, lots of other things played a role. Okay? People have talked about the CRA and Fannie and Freddie and the pressure from Congress after the accounting scandals. Charlie Calamirez has written great stuff about this to get more and more affordable housing. Okay? So that is the thing that, in my view, is the only thing that we determined a cause because it was the exogenous thing that was driving the rest of the system. Now, of course, the private sector responded to the incentives created by government policy, and of course, some people in the private sector did things which were kind of nutty in retrospect. They took on amounts of risk, which clearly were not going to be sustainable. Um, but it doesn't follow that it was stupid for them to do it ex ante, okay? At the time, it may have been incredibly rational to do it because they were making so much money. Even ex post, for many of them, it may still have been rational to do because they made so much money for a f- few years that even with the losses now, they've come out ahead. That's not true of everybody, but it's certainly true of some people acted in the market, okay? So these other things, okay, that people want to pin blame on, okay, they, the private sector things, to me, that's, completely reversing direction of causation and not thinking about what was the exogenous thing which caused other things to follow and what were the responses to the exogenous factors. Mortgage bankers didn't get up some morning and say, you know what? For decades, we've been insisting on down payments. We've been really fussy about to whom we make loans. We've been wanting people to have assets and jobs and income and all that. Forget it. No down payments, no income, no jobs. Everybody gets a loan. The private sector didn't just wake up and start doing that. They did that because there was pressure from government and the implicit bailout of all the mortgage debt that came along with Fannie, Freddie, the CRA, pressure from members of Congress, pressure from HUD and the Clinton administration, and so on. Okay. So that's my view of what caused uh, the situation. Now, given that we got there, did the bailout make any sense? Okay. So I would suggest that the bailout made no sense, Okay, and you should think about it from three perspectives. The first perspective is distributional. The second perspective is its long-run implications for the U.S. economy and other economies. And the third is, was it the right thing to do to limit or prevent or stop the crisis? Was it the right thing to do to avoid recession or reduce the recession and things like that? Now, from a distributional perspective, clearly the bailout is totally idiotic. No one with a straight face could defend it. We're taking money from the general taxpayer and giving it to people who at least were rich, and many of whom still are rich, and who took huge risks, in some cases counting on being bailed out with other people's money. It's completely crazy to actually bail them out with other people's money. So distributionally, it's a moronic policy. From a long-run perspective, it's maybe somewhat more controversial, but I think should still be very easy, at least for most economists. The bailout, that is, the TARP, where the government was proposing to uh, hold auctions to buy these toxic assets, or the capital injections, where the government has taken direct equity stakes in the banks, is, in my assessment of history and and the way economies and policymakers work, is guaranteed to do enormous damage to the allocation of capital in the U.S. going forward, because The government will make the decisions about where that capital goes. It will go to fund renewable energy. It will go to fund uh, more loans to low-income borrowers. It will go in the districts of of, uh, powerful congressmen, and so on and so forth. Billions of bad things when politics rather than economics makes decisions about how capital is allocated, about what kinds of things banks are supposed to lend for. There will be zillions of secondary effects going along with that. Strategic behavior, as several people alluded to, where Insurance companies decide that they're going to be banks so they can get access to the money, and so on and so forth. Okay? So the long-run implications okay, are disastrous. We'll have everybody else asking for a bailout, such as General Motors, okay, and so on. I, there's all sorts of bizarre stories of, like, the... Hispanic um, Boat Builders Association to thinking it needs a bailout because, you know, small business is hurting now, and so we have to make sure the small builders, and there are a lot of small builders of boats in some part of the country. So that sort of stuff will go on forever. It will never go away. We will never sell off the equity stakes in banks, okay? So we're stuck with these horrible long run implications. So now is the somewhat harder question. Was the bailout a good thing from the perspective of avoiding the crisis, Several responses. First, it was clearly not going to prevent a contraction because the contraction had already started. And it had already gone fairly far, and it didn't look like it had dynamics that were that different than the dynamics of billions of other recessions that have happened in the U.S. and other economies. So it wasn't obvious that there was a reason to panic on that basis. And at a minimum, it wasn't going to stop us from having a downturn. Was it going to make the downturn smaller? Well, what's the argument for that? I find the argument for that less than compelling. The argument is that there are externalities, that there are negative spillovers when one bank fails. When a non-bank company fails, people don't worry about negative spillovers. If General Motors failed, if it went bankrupt, that would actually be good for all the other car manufacturers. They have more customers. Well, to some degree, the same thing's got to be true for banks as well. One bank fails people who want to borrow money go to other banks but people worry about a different aspect of it which is that when one bank starts to fail it calls in loans from other banks or collects assets from other banks that puts pressure on other otherwise solvent banks and you get a contagion a cascading and you destroy a whole bunch of banks that shouldn't have been destroyed okay, and therefore you lose all the intermediation capital people can't find anywhere to loan to to borrow and you get a credit freeze now I'm not saying that story is wrong. I'm not saying there's no evidence for that story, but I don't think there's strong evidence for that story, and there's nothing that I've read that suggests that because of that kind of mechanism, we would have had a huge Great Depression or any sort of catastrophic downturn had we just done nothing, had we just allowed the process of bankruptcy to take its course. the basic motivation for the bailout to me okay, was not very convincing. It had some small chance perhaps of moderating the downturn, but not a great chance. And the degree to which the downturn would have been worse would, in my view, have been modest. So to t- undertake all these other negative things, the long run effects, the distributional effects, for a small chance of a beneficial short run effect, to me was a horrible combination. In addition, there are ways in which the bailout could have made things worse. It created more uncertainty, it created delay. It got all the banks to say, gee, if we're going to get 50 cents on the dollar for this junk from the government, why sell it for 20 cents on the dollar now? All sorts of strategic behavior by banks in response to the mere announcement that there might be a bailout was in itself possibly going to cause a credit freeze more than anything that additional failures would have done. So going forward, my view is, agreeing with many people before me, we need to get rid of, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, we need to get rid of the Community Reinvestment Act. And more generally, we need to say, if we're going to help poor people buy homes, we do it by giving them income, not by intervening in housing markets. Now, what's clear is if you did that explicitly, it'd be a ton of money and taxpayers might not, voters might not vote for it. That's precisely why the advocates of it don't want it to be an explicit budget item because they know it will end up being much smaller. But overall, it's clearly the right thing to do because then honest people can debate what is the right amount of income to redistribute rather than doing through this backdoor effect. Another key lesson going forward is when governments create bad policies, you don't always see the effects right away, and sometimes it takes a long time. Hey, Fannie and Freddie, Fannie was created in the Great Depression, Hey, what did it do for a long time? It bought up securities and repackaged them. It was pretty innocuous. It did stuff that the private sector would more or less have done on its own. So you didn't see any horrible effects. But when you create organizations which you don't need to create, the government doesn't need to create, sooner or later some perfect storm of events is going to happen, and then they're going to come back to haunt you in a big way, and the recent episode is a perfect example of that. So my advice going forward to the government – be heated the same as my advice to my kids and, you know, on all of the policy is, don't do anything. Don't pass a stimulus package, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just stop messing around and let the markets work it out, which will, I think they will do much faster if the government steps aside. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Um, who said you get one point of view when you come to a Cato Monetary <laughs> Conference? Uh, the floor is open for questions now. Do we have a mic? Oh, Jim, did you? You, you want the Q and A first, and then you go. Okay. So, yeah, Mary, we need we need a mic someplace. Um, I just wanted to try to get it. A- clarification from um, Bill Poole. I think what um, uh, Professor Miron and Alan Melter said both was that they saw the um, origination of the problem coming from federal government policies. <coughs> and I think I understood you to say that you saw it coming from the private sector. So after hearing their uh, analysis, could you just clarify a little bit why you think they're wrong and you're right?
1: No, I, I think I said that uh, you know on a, on my <coughs> father was a lawyer, so there's contributory negligence involved here, as they would say. Uh, but the way I would put it is, the mortgage originators who uh, created all the subprime paper could not have done that without the market and in the investment banks and the uh, and the commercial banks that bought the paper. And it's those investors who created that market and made the mistake. And the government was not telling. Uh, Goldman Sachs or Wachovia or anybody to buy an enormous amount of this paper I don't think that from when I listened to Alan uh, Meltzer I don't think we disagree or disagree very much on that so in the absence of the market for that paper the the originators could never could never have peddled it, that, that's essentially my view
2: Uh, I guess I have the same question for Professor Miran, and uh, maybe just asked a different way, which is just you said in your comments <laughs> that the uh, loan originators were not just all of a sudden saying, gee, I'm going to all of a sudden um, not require down payments and those kinds of things. I'm going I'm to do things I otherwise wouldn't do because I'm feeling pressure from the government. I mean, specifically like what, uh, some bureaucrat or some well, bank examiner or what? Or, which is a rhetorical question, wasn't it really more the fact that when you have a uh, in the originate to distribute model, knowing that there's this insatiable demand behind you for – in a low interest rate environment for securities that are going to pay a higher rate of interest, particularly if they're rated AAA, wasn't that really more what caused the, uh, the loans to be made? I mean really in your heart of hearts, do you seriously think it was the government that made people make loans they otherwise didn't want to make as opposed to these other market factors?
4: Uh, I think it was a combination of the pressure coming from the CRA and all the things that followed on that, combined with, which which in its uh, in and of itself basically constituted a promise to bail them out. You could say the, that you could think about the situation the following way: the government decrees people who sell apples, bushels of apples, have to sell them with 50% bad apples and 50% good apples. You can't just sell a bushel full of good apples. If that's clear, okay, you'd say well. Bushels of apples be priced at half the other price. There's no issue. There's no risk. You know, everybody knows what they're getting. But I don't think that's the way the political economy works. When the government mandates that you have to sell bushels of bad apples, a bunch of people are going to come back after they get to the wormy apples and say, oh, you sold me bad apples. I'm suing you, or you owe me more apples. And then the private agencies, which were told to sell the bad apples, are going to turn to the government and say, you made me sell bad apples. Now you have to make it good. That's what I think was happening with the mortgages. There was lots of pressure, and there was a, this guarantee, there was this very widely understood view that the government is going to make it good. There was this thing on NPR where a woman called in and said, you know, my husband's been in the financial sector for years and years, and he keeps coming home every week and telling me how much money he's making, but what, all this, how this stuff is completely nuts, it doesn't make any sense, and all know it's going to go belly up. And I said, well, aren't you worried about that? And he says, no, the government will bail us out when it crashes. Now, admittedly, that was an anecdote. But that illustrates perfectly what I'm saying I think was happening.
3: That's what the Greenspan put was.
4: Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: Back, back in the back row. Andre.
5: Uh, the presentations. I have a question for uh, uh, Professor Myron, actually two questions. First of all, it's a very good observation. It seems to me correct observation that the contraction in the American economy studied before the some kind of the sharpest phase, uh, sharpest phase of the financial crisis. This double question. First, you are saying that you, it was about January. From my reading of data, it looks like it was July this year. And this is a question well, why would we choose uh, January, not July? Even looking at just GDP was in the two quarters, weak but positive. But second question, much more important what was the reason for contraction of economy? Before, clearly, before the, the sharpest phase of uh, financial crisis, and even look at the housing crisis, it was actually going almost up. It was just really some kind of subsiding substantially. What has happened?
4: So the reason I put the data of the downturn substantially earlier is because even though what you said about GDP is exactly right, it's because if you look at monthly indicators, industrial production, retail sales, employment, average hours, they all tell the very different story of the January <coughs> rather than July. Okay? And there was negative growth in GDP in the fourth quarter of 2007, and then there was relatively weak growth in the first two quarters of 2008. So averaged over that year... It's only a growth of 0.82 percent, I think. And while that's not exactly contraction, it's still well below average. So even GDP was looking quite weak before you get to the third quarter of the current year. Um, Your second question was why? Well, Fed was raising interest rates starting from sort of early 2006. So if you allow for some moderate lag in the effect of monetary policy, it's just monetary policy that created a standard old recession. That may not – I'm not positive that's the right explanation, but it's a perfectly plausible explanation consistent with the facts. Uh, right down in the
3: front, please. I panicked in January. Cutting those rates a hell of a lot.
1: Someone argued earlier that one of the main causes of the current problems that we have are the U.S. imbalances, too much consumption, not enough exports – big trade deficit. Is this the time to try
2: and solve that problem rather than moving to build more houses, which we already have too many?
1: I think that Bill. comes from me. <laughs> yeah. my, my, my view on that is that we need to have more uh, business-fixed investment, uh, capital formation. I don't want to build more houses. Uh, that's not the component of investment. And there may be a case, although I, I'm... Uh, I, I I'm not, don't know how strong the case is to try to have some stimulus for state and local infrastructure investment, but I'm sort of rather suspicious of that because of the very long lags and the uh, large amount of abuse in those programs. But I think the main thing is we need more business capital formation, and that's what we ought to be doing. <clears throat> yeah, Yeah. Um,
3: I do, in fact, claim to have said... <coughs> that we need to do something about eliminating the excess supply of housing. So that's a short-term problem. I think that when the Congress is uh, (coughs) throwing out money, and the administration to some extent, throwing out money rapidly and talking about throwing out more, they have to bear in mind that that's going to have a long-term cost on the U.S. consumer, and that long-term cost is going to be a slower growth rate of consumption because we're going to have to export. So that's the longer-term problem. But it's good, and one of the things that's missing in political dialogue is some concern about what the consequences of what they're doing now is. I mean, it's all well and good to say we're going to relieve this and we're going to relieve that, and we're going to be <clears throat> support everybody who has a problem. And let me add to that that the other day at the Treasury, who was there? It was the mayor <coughs> of Philadelphia. And what did he want? Well, the cities have promised pensions which they are unable to pay without increasing their tax rates. So they're saying, well, can't we use some of the money from the from, uh, $700 billion to help pay the pensions? You know, there's just going to be an endless number of claimants on these problems. And if Congress decides that it's going to solve the problem for everybody, it's going to do that. at the expense of future consumption. That's no other way. And, you know, I once told Dick Cheney, when you said that Ronald Reagan showed that deficits don't matter, you forgot to add the second sentence, as long as the Chinese buy them. Thank you.
0: Yes, I think this gentleman
6: Martin Hutchinson, the bear's lair. If you look at the graph of M3 money supply, it takes a sharp kink upwards in early 1995. There's a Greenspan Humphrey Hawkins testimony in February of that year. And then increases by about 9% per year until the beginning of this year, which is faster than nominal GDP. Now, everybody in the early 80s seems to have decided that money supply was a lousy thing to look at to control monetary policy. But my question is, wasn't that just a problem of removing regulation Q? And if, in fact, you're in a steady state where regulation isn't changing much, doesn't the coincidence of the increased growth of money supply with the stock market taking off like a rocket and your housing taking off like a rocket suggest, in fact, that money supply is doing its job very well of... Um, you know, predicting the economy, and that actually managing that M three number once you got to nineteen ninety five and the regulatory changes had finished might well have been the way to control it. The um,
3: if you look at the equation that the St. Louis Fed developed way back, you'll find that there's not much evidence of near term. Effect that controlling money is going to do very much. And Otmar Issing, in a wonderful book that he wrote about founding the ECB and uh, his role and the role of the economists in the founding of the ECB, says it very well. He uses money to look at the longer term consequences of what happens, and that seems like a very good thing to do. Uh, that is, but there are too many short term things that happen. To the price level as opposed to the rate of inflation, to uh, productivity shocks, things that money doesn't have any immediate impact on. And so most central banks have found that it's not a very useful thing to do because their emphasis, their concern, you know, having read more Federal Reserve minutes than anybody ought to ever have to read, I can tell you that they spend almost all of their time, discussing what are they going to do next. That is, what about next month or next quarter? You know, longer-term consequences are mentioned, but they're not very important in what they do. The money stock is, growth is very important for those longer-term consequences. That's why they don't pay much attention to it. <clears throat> they don't care about the longer-term consequences because they feel that they are under pressure to do things now.
0: We've got one in the second tier here.
4: Many people, including Alan Greenspan, blame the crisis on the free market. What's ignored is that the existence of a central bank whose fiat currency is protected by legal tender laws flies in the face of having a free market. My question for uh, Miron is, how do we get back to the fundamental questions instead of just deciding what the Federal Reserve does? And how do we get back to questions like, does the Constitution actually allow for everything that's happening? Um, well, I agree that those are like the right questions. Um, I think we should rethink what exactly is a bank, who charters it, you know, why can't there just be completely free banking, why can't banks suspend convertibility, for example, and mediate the need for deposit insurance. And I said very clearly in a, a column in Reason that, we shouldn't have a central bank, but that's a big uphill fight. I agree with you. I agree with you that it's it's infinitely frustrating because as long as there is a central bank, it's going to do stuff. And once it's done some stuff, you know, once Greenspan has lowered the interest rates after 9/11, you know, in response to this recession, say for the moment that was the right thing to do, then he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. Well, does he keep them there forever? Okay? Because that has some effects, or does he raise them back up? If people expect him to act like a normal central banker and try to stabilize, and he doesn't, that may, you know, have bad effects in the short term. So as long as it's there, it's a big, big problem. But, you know, I don't know how does he, how you have that discussion.
3: What he should have responded to Chairman Frank was, look at your own behavior. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's the right note to end the Q&A session and now we have the the opening remarks that are going to be delivered by Jim Dorn
3: <laughs> I mean that was disgraceful when Greenspan did that I mean that's shameful
7: Now you don't need to worry uh, since these are welcoming remarks the conference is not just beginning it's ending <laughs> uh, I just want to thank everyone, especially the speakers and the chairs, for the excellent job they've done. And thank you for attending the conference. And I wanted to thank uh, Bill Poole, who's now a senior uh, scholar at Cato, for pinch hitting for me while I was stuck in two and a half hours of traffic this morning coming from Baltimore. I just got back from China where I uh, gave a paper over there on – creating financial harmony uh, lessons for China uh, from the U.S. And, the, uh, <clears throat> was a good and my Chinese friends all said, we always look to the U.S. as our teacher, and who are we going to look to now? You know, it's a good question. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Victoria Cartwright. Is Victoria around She did a tremendous job uh, helping to organize this conference, and also the Cato staff and and Bob Garber uh, did a a tremendous job. You know, I've been running this conference for 26 years. Uh, I started when I was about 10 years old, Uh, but... uh, Some of the people that are here today were at our first conference back in 1983, including um, Ellen Meltzer, Anna Schwartz, who would have been here, uh, Larry White, uh, also Alan Reynolds and Roger Garrison, and uh, Jerry O'Driscoll. So they're still alive and kicking. And, uh, you know, uh, if I can do this for another 26 years, I'll still be younger than Anna Schwartz is now. So uh, uh, also at that first conference, we had uh, Fritz Machlup, who uh, some of you knew, great, a great man, a great economist, and our old friend Gottfried Hobbler. I used to have lunch with him over at AEI with Alan Meltzer a long time ago. He was a tremendous man. And two Nobel laureates, uh, Jim Buchanan and Bob Mundell, were both at the conference. They won't, didn't win a Nobel Prize until after the conference, so that, uh, that's a prerequisite now for the, for the Nobel. I just want to say a couple Really quick things, what I got out of this conference myself. Um, One thing is to get the rules right, as Bert Ely uh, mentioned. Uh, Extremely important. Uh, We've always taken kind of a rules-based approach here at this conference and at a lot of stuff Cato does. And, of course, F.A. Hayek always liked to look at the rules of the game. Uh, Second, uh, as Jeff Lacker pointed out, uh, we need to establish credible boundaries, uh, and he was talking about uh, Federal Reserve policy with respect to lending uh, versus the market. Uh, Zannie Mitten-Baitos, who was our, our, our friend and uh, the, the economist used to co-sponsor this conference uh, with us for quite a while, uh, she had a very good survey article in The Economist a couple of weeks ago, and she, er, the whole emphasis of that on the financial crisis was the correct balance between the state and the market. So those are fundamental questions, uh, and you go back to first principles. Which brings me to the comment that Larry White made uh, that it would be nice to have a forecast-free monetary regime that uh, was more or less automatic, uh, as we had under the gold standard. In fact, I was just reading on the plane over to China uh, some very exciting reading, uh, Greenspan's book on the age of turbulence. Uh, He wrote an epilogue, so I figured I might as well take a a look at that. But in his book, what Greenspan said was that – there is no inherent anchor in a fiat money regime. No kidding. Uh, uh, that's why we, if we do have a Fed, we need some type of rule-based regime, it seems to me, and we need more discussion of that. Uh, finally, I would like to point out that um, a lot of this is in monetary history, and it's not new. And uh, on the back of the Cato Journal, I always like to use a quote, and the, it's getting harder to find quotes after 26 years, but... Uh, I found another one that fits perfectly, and I just wanted to read part of this to you before we leave. Uh, And it's on the convertibility principle. And this is John Stuart Mill said this in his Principles uh, economics book, a great classic. Uh, And he wrote this back in 1848. He said, there is therefore a great preponderance of reasons in favor of a convertible in preference to even the best regulated inconvertible currency. The temptation to overissue in certain financial emergencies is so strong that nothing is admissible which can tend in however slight a degree to weaken the barriers that restrain it. And James Madison said the same thing. So uh, maybe we need to think a little bit more about how we can have a convertible uh, currency and parallel currencies uh, as well. Uh, And some of the people here have done a lot of work on that, and it deserves more attention. Uh, Finally, the the uh, papers that were presented at this conference will appear in the Cato Journal. Uh, we publish special issues every year on the Monetary Conference, so you can look uh, for that in the near future. It will also be on our website. And I hope you can join us next year. Uh, when I was in China, one thing I was always looking for is ways to improve the conference, and uh, the Chinese really know how to run a conference um, when the speakers come up to the podium, there's flowers there, and, and then they have the speakers march, the old Chinese symbols and everything. I think that would be pretty nice. Uh,
0: I'm,
7: sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that Alan Greenspan would have enjoyed that when, when he was here. Uh, so um, let me uh, thank you again and uh, come back and see us and uh, go upstairs and uh, relax a little bit. Thank you.